And so you have to start with stuff that um, a lot of people don't like to build. My dad once said, if you want to be really rich, be a garbage man, because no one wants to take out the garbage, right? So do the stuff that all these other entrepreneurs and founders don't want to do. And that was hello, 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 and welcome to Afternoon Tea. I am super excited because I have Mike Potter, the CEO of Rewind, joining me today. But Mike, before we start, let me set this up. Mike Potter is the co-founder and CEO of Rewind, a leading cloud data backup provider trusted by over 30,000 businesses to protect their data on platforms such as BigCommerce, Shopify, and QuickBooks, a veteran entrepreneur. Mike has over 25 years of experience building solutions for the software, cloud, and data analytics space, including 10 years at Adobe and Mozilla. He earned his MBA from the University of Ottawa and his Bachelor of Engineer of Mechanical Engineering from McMaster University. And Mike currently resides in Ottawa, Canada. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, Chris, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic, fantastic. So rewind, I mean, reading reading about it, um, you know, out, out in Ottawa, we're, we're in Vancouver. So I love discovering more and more great companies across our great nation. Um, but can you just tell me, why don't you start from the beginning? Can you tell me the creation story of rewind, please? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we live in Ottawa, um, and I'm a big backups fan. And that's really sort of the genesis of the of the idea. Um, I've subscribed to a backup service for a long time. I've lost data before. Uh, during my time at Adobe, I was a technical evangelist, and I remember doing a talk in front of a few hundred people one day, went to advance my slides, and, and the computer froze. I was like, that's kind of weird. And so I rebooted my computer, and so the screen behind me went black. Nobody could see anything, and my computer reboots, and it's got a picture of a hard drive with a big question mark over oh, it. Oh, no. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's <laughs> the end of that talk. We won't be doing the rest of it. Um, you know, and so I think once you've lost data you know, you really make sure that that, that doesn't happen again, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I am that backup freak. I back up my computers to two hard drives that are here um, on the ground in my office. I've got a whole separate system that backs up into the cloud using a service called Backblaze. Like mm -hmm. I am, I, I just, I know I don't want to lose that data again. Mm -hmm, and I thought mm -hmm. it would be a really great business to start. So in 2015, I approached my friend, James Chashelsky, who I'd worked with in the past at another startup in Ottawa. And I said, like, let's do something on the side. We started a second, a first project that didn't really go anywhere. And so it was a few months in, I said, let's, let's do this. I think backups is going to be a good business. So he said, you know, what do you want to back up? And I said, well, let's start backing up Shopify. You know, they're, mm. we're in Ottawa, they're in Ottawa. It's 2015. They're growing like crazy. I mean, they're still growing like crazy, mm -hmm. but you could tell that, that they had, you know, hundreds of thousands of merchants. Um, and, and that was sort of how we started. We launched the app for free in, in June of 2015, just to see if people had the problem. And sure enough, at Christmas time, one of our customers lost all of their data mm -hmm. in their store, called us up and they're like, hey, you can help us, right? Because we just installed you. And we really had no idea whether the product could, could do what it said it could do. <laughs> it was free at that time. We weren't charging <laughs> anything, um, but it did. It worked exactly as it was intended. We had all of their data backed up. I remember calling him up and saying, okay, like reload your page. You should see your store exactly the way it was. He reloaded it. It was exactly the way it was before he lost all of his uh, products and he was over the moon. And that was, you know, that we, we thought at that point we had a pretty good business. So in 2016, we started charging for it and we've grown it from then to a company now of about 115 people. Fantastic. Well, that, that, that is really exciting. So do you have like your own data center then for the backups or do you, do you use another cloud services data center and just, you know, put it to there or what's, what's, what's the magic sauce with that? 
Yeah, so we leverage Amazon and a lot of the uh, functionality that they've got, the ability to scale that they've got has really, really helped us. Um, we handle, you know, like you said, backups for about 30,000 customers, you know, hundreds of millions of updates um, on a monthly basis, billions of items. Um, without that infrastructure and without their expertise in scaling that infrastructure, I'm not sure that you could really build this business without uh, an enormous amount of capital and and really great people who knew how to you know, run data centers. Mm -hmm. So we leverage Amazon, we've stored data in Canada, in the US, in Europe, because some privacy regulations and legal regulations have stipulations on where data is stored and processed. So we make sure that we abide by you know, laws like the CCPA or the GDPR or the Canadian Privacy Act. So um, using Amazon, leveraging Amazon, storing all of our data in various data centers in Amazon um, in a bunch of different continents. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, um, in, in my notes, I made a, a, a slight mistake and I said that you raised $15 million and you very humbly, very humbly suggested it was a little bit more. And you said, actually, since we've done 80 million, which made me go, wow, okay, that's that's incredibly impressive. And congratulations for for building, you know, not only a product, but a, a, a trust that, you know, people want to be part of and all that. But can you tell me about, you know, what's it like to raise that much, uh, that much uh, investment? Yeah, I think we went through the first four years or so of the company raising very little, we, we've, we kind of had this reputation, at least in Ottawa, being mainly bootstrapped, which was not exactly true. We had we had raised, I think, every kind of round you can possibly raise. But every time we raised money, we really tried to raise as little as possible. So we raised a friends and family round in 2017. We raised a seed round. We raised, uh, sorry, we raised a pre-seed round. We raised a seed round. We raised a seed B round, and then we raised our Series A last um, uh, last November, actually, about a year ago now, uh, mm -hmm. of 15 million, like you mentioned, and you know the business it was just kind of an evolution of, of how we had run the business. And we had really great business fundamentals like underlying the company. And that allowed us to raise that 15 million a year ago. And as we invested that 15 million, we ended up buying a company in Germany that does backups for GitHub. So we added support mm -hmm. for GitHub backups to our product and we've grown that business nicely. Uh, we've grown our own revenue nicely. And so earlier uh, this year, just a few months ago, we raised an additional $65 million to continue to grow the business. And I think, you know, it is, it's a considerable amount of money, but it, it kind of follows just a natural evolution of where the company was going, to be honest with you. Like as you grow um, and your revenue is growing and your business fundamentals are showing that they're, that they're sound. Um, it's just natural to want to put more capital into the business and try and expand it quickly and cover off more platforms and grow to be a really, you know, massive Canadian success story. And so that was really the, the, the reason that we went and raised that 65 million was the business was doing great. The fundamentals mm -hmm. are really strong. And we think we can build just a massive business that's doing backups for every cloud service that's out there. That's fantastic. So when, when you, when you, like discuss um, the raise because I'm always intrigued by by the raise sides of businesses. Do you do you say, well, this is our ask or this is our want and this is what we can do, and or is it more you know like do you did you have a number in mind or do the do the do the actual investors come in with a number that they think like how do you, how do you meet that happy medium? We had a number we had a number that we were looking to raise like we have a plan and a budget that we're working towards and we have a sense of how much money we want to be 
spending in a month, uh, in a year, um, and how much we're burning on a yearly basis, how much revenue we're going to bring in. And so we've got sort of a, uh, this sort of financial model that we've got that goes out a couple of years. So we had a good sense of what we were looking to, to bring in. And then as you talk to investors, you know, there's certain investors that you, that you really like, that you think can add a lot of value, that you really want to make sure you get onto your cap table so that they're on your board, so that you can talk to them, so you can access the people that they're connected to and the help that they're providing to you. And, you know, in our case, it just so happened that, that the, the amount that the investors wanted to put in was substantially more than what the company could realistically absorb. And so we did um, a secondary offering as part of that second, as part of that series B round, just to make sure that we could get those investors on board, because we really liked the people that we were talking to. We thought they'd add a lot of value and we had to figure out a way of getting them on board without um, putting too much capital into the business. Um, because we really didn't have an efficient way of, of spending it in, in terms of the growth that we think we can achieve. Yeah, and, and that's important. I mean, you have to think on both sides of that equation, right? Like, you know, are, if you take too much money, well, then how do you do the next raise that looks attractive to other investors and, right. and all that? So you do, I mean, a lot of people, unsophisticated, uh, you know, entrepreneurs be like, well, just give me everything. Like, I want $200 million, but they don't realize that now you have to make, you know, you have to raise at, at 10 times that or at eight times, like it's very difficult to do and anything looks negative. So um, I think that controlled uh, the controlled raise, but but like a very <laughs> huge number uh, in terms of controlled raise is fantastic. So so uh, congratulations on that. Are most of your investors, are, are they in the States? Are they in Canada? Are they in a combination? A combination. So Inovia has invested in Rewind as part of their um, uh, sort of standard fund as, and their growth fund. So we've got mm-hmm. both um, funds that are in, in Rewind. And then we took money as well from Insight Venture Partners in our Series B round. Uh, Ridge uh, Investors is a group out of San Francisco that's invested mm-hmm. in Bessemer uh, Venture Partners out of uh, Boston and New York has also invested. So we've got you know a few um, American investors and then Anovia and a, another one called Scale Up that led our seed round uh, are the investors mainly from Canada. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, well, you know what? Let's let's get back to, to the the business side then. So again, you're in Ottawa, and you know Shopify. Obviously, I mean, as he said, it just it made natural sense. Do you have people like because Shopify technically isn't the isn't isn't the client? It's the clients of Shopify is the client, but you need to have that relationship with with Shopify to make it work or to to at least you know. Um, massage what needs yes. you know what needs to be in there how, how much time or do you have people that are dedicated just to that relationship or how, how do you de- develop that relationship with Shopify yeah I think there's a number of us that have really good relationships with Shopify I mean obviously being in the same city with them certainly helps we can get together in person we see them at events that we go to you know we've spoken at their company uh, both internal events and external events that are hosted at their office so we, have, we, have, we have a great relationship with a lot of people that work there. I think, you know, we are one of the top apps that they have. And so they're obviously, you know, great partners of ours and, um, and have connected with us to, uh, to help sort of tell the story of a successful Shopify app. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's just a number of people on the Rewind side, like on all levels that have really good relationships with them, whether that be on the product side, whether it be on the marketing side. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've just recently hired a head of partnerships who's mm-hmm. working with them as well. Um, I've got relationships with them stemming back from the time when we first started. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I'd say it's 
not not necessarily there's not necessarily one person at rewind that is focused on the relationship with shopify as much as there are a number of people that are focused on the business and in turn have really good relationships with that team because you know they're a great partner like like all mm. of the platforms that we support actually for sure for sure and i guess you know you have to be on the technical side because you have to know who you know of what's the rollout uh, or the roadmap so that, you know, it doesn't break anything on your product. So I guess it's, it's a full fledged relationship. And then, so you'd have like, say with web commerce or with um, uh, was it web commerce or uh, big, commerce. Uh, big commerce. Thank you. Big commerce. It would be a very similar thing where you'd have people on the ground making relationships with these, these large organizations in a very similar way. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so you've got people from a product side that are connecting with their product managers, like you said, to understand their roadmap, make sure that there's mm -hmm. nothing that they're launching that's going to be breaking the product that if they do make some changes that we know that we can restore the data properly, that's a big concern of us always to make sure that, although you can, you know, backing up is relatively easy, restoring the data is actually extremely difficult. Uh, the smallest change that they make could could break the the restore functionality. So we have to make sure that that's constantly working. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So same with, same with BigCommerce, same with QuickBooks, same with GitHub, you know, there are relationships up and down the organization with all of the platforms that we support. Um, from a product side, from a marketing side, from a partnership side, um, from a support side as well. So yeah, it really goes throughout the organization really. It's a, one of the, I guess, consequences of building a business that is dependent on these platforms, right? Like mm. our business only works because we're backing up all of these partners applications. And so we have to have really good relationships with all of them. For sure, for sure. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued because you started, you founded the company in 2015. Uh, as he said, but you worked as a senior project manager uh, until 2017. So it was a side, we'll call it a side hustle, whatever you want to call it. What yeah. was that aha moment when you said, nope, I'm I'm jumping in, like, this is where I want to go? Was was there that aha moment? Well, so the I, this is my second startup. The previous one uh, was called Add-in Social. Mm -hmm. And with add-in social, I think the mistake I made was quitting my job too early and mm -hmm. diving into it without having customers, without having revenue, and then adding the pressure of having you know kids at home, a wife, a mortgage, mm -hmm. wanting to put food on the table. Um, so when we when we when James and I did this one, I was really adamant that I didn't want to be leaving my job too early. I actually really liked my job at Sid. It was a fantastic company. I liked what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But it did get to the point where you could see that this was that this was growing very quickly. Our our first three years of revenue, I think we made thirty thousand dollars our first year, three hundred thousand dollars our second year, and one point two million our third year. So in that second year, when you're growing ten x, mm -hmm. you you know you're it's pretty obvious that this thing is growing quickly, and this is not like an, a normal thing. I just made sure to. Um, to give my boss as much notice as possible before leaving. So I told him months in advance, I said, Hey, you know, I'm very, I was very open about it. I was working on this project on the side nights mm -hmm. and weekends might work out, might not. And then as it started growing and you could see it being successful, I gave him a heads up. I'm like, this is turning out really good. I'm likely going to be leaving. And then when I decided to leave, uh, I gave him as much notice as I possibly could. I think it was like three or four months notice to say, listen, mm -hmm. like, like I am leaving, like just as a heads up here, this is working out. And you just knew, you know, at, at the time it was great because there was actually four of us at that point who were working on rewind, all of us part-time nights and weekends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the conversation with my wife was a really easy conversation because we were essentially at that point, all four of us working two jobs, 
you'd go work nine to five in your day job and then you'd come home nights and weekends and do the side hustle. And, you know, the company at that point was making tens of thousands of dollars a month. And so we could say, listen, we're going to quit our day jobs and work <laughs> on this uh, other thing without any change in pay, without any change in salary, without any change in compensation, because the company could sustain itself at that point. And that's a really easy conversation to have with, you know, your significant other, because it's like, listen, I'm doing two jobs. Now I'll just be doing one job and I won't have to work nights and weekends. Um, you know, I'd like to work on this. And so that's, that's sort of how it went. Uh, but it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. I think as we look back to see that we had four people that worked essentially 16 months to 18 months of nights and weekends um, to get this working. I mean, that was a long long time, you know, on, I remember Friday nights upgrading databases, and I'm sure all of us wanted to do something other than work on a database upgrade on a Friday night is as exciting <laughs> as that is to do. Um, you know, we just we did what it took to make sure that the company was successful. Yeah, you, you know, you, I don't know why you're saying that, but I had this this fear of typing the command RM minus RF star. I've done that yeah. before. <laughs> if you if you want to really well, we're a backup company, we <laughs> we're a backup company so we were good we we knew we were pretty good on the on the disaster recovery front i would have i i could have i could have used your backups for one or two times where <laughs> i thought i was getting a little too creative with my uh with my scripting there um yeah. well you know what you talked you talked a little bit about ad in social and i think i think that's i think that's really interesting you know you already had some lessons learned um in terms of um uh, not jumping as quickly, um, which I think is which I think is mature and really interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about Add In Social, like the the idea behind it and and what you did with it? Yeah, I mean, the idea came when I was at Adobe and I was watching us launch these products and really trying to coordinate all of these social media campaigns. So posting to the blog, posting to YouTube, to Facebook, to Twitter, and you could see all of these social networks starting to pop up and take off. LinkedIn comes in around that time as well. And the, I found that the management and coordination of those campaigns was really difficult. So what we did with Add In Social is we built this product that allowed us to coordinate a social media campaign. So you could schedule a video to go live on YouTube at a certain date and time. It would then be embedded into a blog post. That blog post could go live. It would take the URL of that blog post, post that to Facebook, post that to Twitter, post that to mm -hmm. LinkedIn, aggregate all the stats and metrics and all of the um, and all of the comments around all of the posts and give you sort of this holistic view of your launch campaign. <laughs> and that didn't that that product I thought was a good idea, but it was maybe a little bit ahead of its time. The execution wasn't uh, wasn't super good, I'd say on it. And the other thing we realized was that as we tried to sell that to agencies, that was work that agencies were actually doing mm. with interns. And those interns were, you know, being paid $15 an hour and being billed out at more than $15 an much, hour. Much more, I bet. And so, <laughs> yeah. And so we successfully built a product that reduced, um, you know, revenue for these companies, which isn't a good thing to be selling mm -hmm. to people. And so we ended up pivoting and saying, okay, what do we have? Like, what's the technology that we have? And we had all of these connections to social media. So we pivoted slightly into adding support for all of those social networks to email marketing providers. There's a lot of them out there like MailChimp and Constant mm -hmm. Contact are kind of the leaders out there, but there are hundreds of smaller providers throughout the States and Canada that really didn't have the people to add social capabilities and publishing into their email apps, but their customers were asking for it. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of the name came in where it was like they could add in social capabilities mm -hmm. into their email clients. And we ended up selling it to a company called My Emma. That's an email marketing company out of Nashville. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and what year? What year was it that you started that one? You founded that one? I think I started that around 2012 or so. Okay, so 2012 or 2013. Very good. And then when did you sell? How long? How long was the journey of that uh, of Adam Social? I think we worked on it for about a year. It wasn't very long at all. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't multiple years or anything like that. It was a pretty quick sort of start and exit. Cause like I said, there really wasn't a whole lot of demand for the product. Mm-hmm. Um, and although we, we did end up selling it, it wasn't for any substantial exit. Okay. Well, fair enough. But uh, and, and any exit's a good exit. Uh, yeah, you know, if, if, you, if, you can, if you can get yeah. your hands, hands clean and you're ready for that next journey and the next mission. And it sounds like, you know, you learned a lot um, through that journey, uh, which I, which I think is, is great too. Well, I mean, I love talking. You're you're probably my age uh, during the dot com years, uh, the the fun dot com years. Let's just say, and uh, you know that was definitely a journey for good or bad that I was part of. Um, but you're the founder of a, of, a, of a group or a company called In the Hack. Um, can you tell me anything about that experience? Yes, that was a curling website that I started in the late 1990s. Uh, so I was a big curler growing up. Mm-hmm. My mom and dad were both curlers, and. Uh, in 1997 or so, I went to the Canadian Curling Association and I said, you know, you guys should really get on the internet. You should, you know, you should post the scores and stuff like that. And they really had no web presence at all. <laughs> and in 1998, curling was going to be an Olympic sport for the first time in Nagano, Japan. So in mm-hmm. 1997, just a few months before that, they had what was called the Olympic curling trials. And that was the first event where uh, the Canadian Curling Association actually put their scores on the internet because mm. I sort of volunteered myself. Let, I said, let me do that. My dad was going to be the head official at the event. So wow. I could tag along with him, stay in his, stay in his hotel room, mm-hmm. and we'd post the scores on the internet. And so Saturday and Sunday of that event, everything was fine. My little program that I had written worked really, really well. Everyone was watching the games on TSN. And then Monday, when everyone went to work and started loading up their website, my whole program completely crashed. Like it oh, no. was overloaded. The amount of traffic was just off the charts. Um, the CCA was was you know blown away by the number of people that were checking out the scores online. And so in the hack um, was sort of it, it was two parts. It was this website that I ran, and then it was this consulting uh, contract that I got with the Canadian Curling Association to get them online and to start doing online scores for that. And then they took me to the Briar and the Scotch from the hearts and the juniors. Um, And so I did that for, you know, about years or so in the late 1990s, early 2000s to try and kickstart them onto the internet. But those first few years were like, you know, really literally me typing away and like (laughs) trying to give a one line summary of what happened in the, in the end, right? Like Sandra Schmerler makes a draw for one and then, one zero sort of thing, and then updated the scores manually and pushed that up to the internet. You know, now everyone can watch all of it on the video and, you know, they can just see what's going on. But back then it was literally a human being typing down what the updates were. Well, you know, I had I had I had uh, Kirk um, a couple of weeks ago on on the podcast, and he was telling me how he makes his own maple syrup. Okay, so I'm like, okay, that's very Canadian. That's but you did the scores of curling. I think you just out Canadian even curl. So this <laughs> this is really impressive. I gotta say, this is this is great. Um, you know, um, well, you know, well, let's keep that 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 theme of of good Canadian sports up. Um, because uh, you know, one thing that you and I both have in common is we have kids who play hockey. And the one difference is I can't skate and it sounds like you coach. So tell me what, what's easier to organize a bunch of, um, well, I want to call it Adams, but under, we'll call it under 12, um, under 11, under 11 kids or your first 10 employees. 
the uh what's harder the kids um i find the kids are are probably more difficult uh <laughs> hockey is it's just a fun thing right like i love coaching hockey i think it's a fantastic um i just think it's a fantastic way to volunteer and to give back mm-hmm. to your community you know these kids i've been coaching them some of them for you now six seven years i've got pictures of you know when they were like little kids in ip um, and I, you know, I was actually at the practice the other day, my son was doing goalie clinic and you just kind of marvel at the, the progress that they make mm-hmm. right from when they first, first start. And it wasn't that long ago when they could hardly skate. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like six years later, seven years later, here they are, you know, my, my son's a goalie. And so he was mm-hmm. at goalie, um, clinic the other day, just learning like the intricate details of like, when you make a save, just trying to absorb the puck a bit. And it's just like the slightest body motion, that he's spending, you know, an hour working on. And I remember back in the day when, you know, he could hardly stand when, you know, he would, he'd just put his stick out to make a save and sometimes it would go through his legs. Um, It's just fun to see, fun to see how, you know, the level of effort that they put in has resulted in them being, you know, really good athletes and Mm -hmm. having a lot of fun playing um, a sport that I think a lot of us really, really like. So. It's, yeah. it's I, I get a lot out of coaching. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love that. I love that because I'm this, I mean, I'm, I'm, my kids are both my son and daughter both play and uh, you know, so they're, they're rink brats and just to see the formation of community around that um, I think is yeah. super important as well as I think it's really important for when they start going to different schools. Now they actually know some of the people when they start high school and, and, and all this. Um, but here's the, here's another very important Canadian question. Did you choose for him to be a goalie or did he ask? Cause I know the curses. You never want your kid to be the goalie. Cause it means all the equipment you got to carry. I was happy just to have them play. That was my philosophy the whole way through was I don't care what you play, what position you play. Mm-hmm. I only care that you play. I don't care what sport. I don't care what position. I just want you to play. Cause I think, like you said, you know, you learn a lot being part of a team, you get friends for life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, it's a great way to, I think it's a great way for kids to spend their time. And so he, I have this theory, I don't know if this is true and whether you'd agree with this, but I think Mm -hmm. people are born wanting to either score goals or save goals. And Mm -hmm. he never had an interest in scoring many goals. He was always, you know, if he was out on the ice in IEP, he would have been the defense and trying to stop them and block them as opposed to being the forward, trying to score them. His brother's almost the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, he wanted to be a goalie in IP. Whenever there was a volunteer to be a goalie, he was like, I want to be that, I want to be that. So um, he played a lot in IP and he just continued it through novice. And like I said, it, to me, it's, um, you know, I, we do hear that a lot that, you know, you, you don't want your kid to be a goalie. And I just never cared. I was very happy mm-hmm. to have him playing and having him enjoy it. And like I said, it's just, it's fun to have seen the progress that he's made because he's a, he's a pretty um, goalie. Awesome. And just fun to watch him and see how how much better he is now than you know two years ago, four years ago, six mm-hmm. years ago. It's you know it's not a long time. So it's, it's not. Kind of neat. And you know what, your coaching is part of that. You know, part of that effort to make them better, better humans too, which I, which I think is cool. Well, yeah. I mean, speaking of better humans, I think I'm actually kind of a, a bad human to admit this, but my son was excited when he was in um, you know Pee Wee two or level two or whatever it was, and he got to be the goalie, and I was doing my secret page, like just get him snowballed with 15 goals. And yeah, he got like 10 against him. And he's like, I never want to do this again. I'm like, that's too bad, son. It was like, thank you. Like, thank you back to defense. You know what? You can stop, you can stop the kids in other ways, man. You know, the other thing about goalies is you can't miss a game. (laughs) 
because people yeah. don't want to just become a goalie all of a sudden. But but anyhow, let's let's yeah. go back because because one thing that really intrigues me as well is that you were the senior product marketing manager at Adobe around the Flash platform. So were you there at the time when Apple kind of did their their song and yep. dance to to not allow it? What did that What did that feel like? What was the experience inside Adobe when when Apple you know said, "Hey, we're not going to support Flash," which was the big the big you know thing driving driving the experiences on the net at the time. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people at Adobe, a lot of people in general recognize that the decision to do that was mainly driven around the desire to monetize games in other ways through their app store mm -hmm. platform, right? It wasn't based on any sort of real technological reason or anything like that. I know they said that it was slow, but obviously a lot of that stuff could have been overcome with hard work. Um, mm -hmm. It was really around monetization. I think Apple did a great job of um, of framing the issue and um, and defining how it was discussed in the media. Um, Flash, I think, at that time was also under you know considerable competition from HTML5 and some of the mm -hmm. work that Ajax was doing. I know that was um, you know something that as we were uh, as we were looking at how we could compete from a developer point of view, that the speed of development of Ajax and some of those frameworks was really quite a, a astonishing. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I remember telling um, my bosses that in the time it takes for people to download our, our uh, IDE, they had already downloaded, installed, and got their first um, Ajax app up and running before they even downloaded our software, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was that, it was sort of that much of a difference. And so it was, it was a really difficult time, I think, from a competition perspective. Um, certainly Flash, I think, could have gotten, personally, my opinion is that Flash could have gotten by without being on the phone. I don't think it was that much of a deal breaker that it wasn't on the phone, but when they came out with the iPad um, and Flash wasn't on the iPad, that was, um, I think a different, uh, I think that was sort of the nail in the coffin for Flash at that point to say, okay, like you, you're really not gonna be part of, of the iOS environment. And, um, and the writing was kind of on the wall at that point, but you know, Flash, Flash had a great run, right? I mean, it was on whatever it was, 98% of computers. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was just this ubiquitous runtime that was a fantastic. It enabled multi-billion and now trillion-dollar businesses with things like YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a it was an amazing piece of technology um, that they built and, and got into the hands of you know billions of people. Um, and you know, I think I think they would look at it as a as a success, even though in the long run that uh, that's now sort of on its way up. Yeah, well, I I remember it, and I love I love Flash. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get, give it a salute actually for for the adventures that we had in the earlier er, the earlier days of the well, I guess first 15 years of the internet. Um, um, but uh, um, you know, there were I, a lot of people that made a lot of you know a lot of a lot of money, and a lot of businesses were built on top of that, right? Consulting completely. companies and web development companies that um, that did extremely well. And I think it, it allowed a sense of design on the web that maybe HTML didn't allow, right? The sort of freedom to, to build things with different components and different look and feel that, um, that HTML ended up kind of supporting eventually. But mm -hmm, some mm -hmm. of the Flash stuff that came out was you know, extremely creative. Um, there's one, actually, if you want the real Canada one, there's like um, a, a customized Santa video app that was built on Flash. Mm -hmm. um, so you could upload like your your kids' names, and Santa walks through, um, you know, a story and mm -hmm. says your kids' names. 
like stuff like that is like, it's just super creative and, and very engaging. You can upload your own pictures into it. And so you end up with this video with your kids' pictures and Santa saying their name. And I, I do that for my kids. I know like they, mm -hmm. they've loved those videos. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. just some stuff that, that people built with it, I think was like really, really creative that, you know, really wasn't possible with HTML at the time. And, mm -hmm. you know, obviously HTML since evolved to something I think that is definitely more competitive, but um, for a long time, it was the, the only way you could do things outside the box. I remember doing a couple of party invites with it and uh, just posting that on the web. And it was because it allowed you to be creative and, it, and with relatively simple tool set, which, uh, you know, yeah. I always appreciated. And it's interesting what you said about the about how Apple, you know, really frames the conversation, because I think they do that really, really well. I was in a bar, uh, Lisbon last week and uh, had really front seats when uh, Craig, I'm going to butcher this name, Craig Federighi, um, you know, did his presentation about uh, the, the the European concern around, you know, opening up multiple app, app stores uh, outside of their control. So I think they call it sideloading or whatever, but they made yeah. it sound so compelling. Like, of course, this is what we want. Apple knows everything, um, you know, but at the end of the day, well, they're, you know, Oh, they just they are good at they are good at making you you stand in line but when you start thinking about it a little bit again i'm pretty sure i'm responsible enough that i cannot get uh you know the the, the russian hackers going all over all over me just because i want to download some app from another store um right but you know that's i guess that's why they're the two trillion dollar company now um well agree Oh, and, and as you're on your way to become a three trillion dollar company, that's 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 what that's what I'm that's what I'm hoping for and, and betting on. So we'll tell you what the theme the theme of afternoon tea is to you know to speak to to wonderful Canadian entrepreneurs like yourself and to to learn from the journey. So I have these two questions I ask you know in in, in every one of the episodes. Um, so I would like to know if you can just please provide one piece of advice that would help younger Canadian founders. I think the one P I've got, I've got a couple of theories. I think um, software in Ottawa So I'll look at Ottawa specifically just for a second okay. um, is meant for really boring software companies. So there was a company in Ottawa called uh, Cognos that did business intelligence software that did extremely well and sold to IBM. There's a company uh, out in Canada right now called Canaxis that's doing supply chain management software. There's rewind that's doing um, backup software there was Clipfolio, or there is Clipfolio that does dashboards for um, uh, for your data. Uh, there's another company called Ascent Compliance that's handling um, compliance issues. Like it is the headquarters of boring software. That's my theory on Ottawa. So to me, it's um, you know the amount of capital that you have access to in Canada and really Ottawa in particular is relatively limited you are not likely to start the next um, AI, VR, 3D modeling company, whatever you want that the new technology is in the city because the access to capital just isn't here like it is in the States. And so you have to start with stuff that um, a lot of people don't like to build. My dad once said, if you want to be really rich, be a garbage man because no one wants to take out the garbage, right? So do the stuff that all these other entrepreneurs and founders don't want to do. And that was really mm -hmm. one of the reasons why we worked on backups, because we thought that there would be very little competition, because I don't think anyone grows up and says, like, I want to work on backup software. It's not the most exciting piece of software that exists. So I guess my advice to young Canadian founders is kind of, at least if you're in Ottawa, really focus on really boring software. Um, <laughs> and I guess the other one is just, uh, you have to I do believe that the Canadian founders are more geared towards starting um, 
not necessarily big venture backed companies, like more lifestyle companies that, that provide this great outcome, which is fantastic. But if you are seeing uh, your, your business or your side hustle take off, taking capital and really trying to grow that business, I think is a, is a worthwhile endeavor and you should really try and take advantage of it. You know, opportunities like what we're doing with Rewind don't come around very often. And so one of the things that we, we thought about when we were deciding to raise money was you don't want to be on your deathbed wondering what if, what if, what if, what if we had taken money? Well, how big could we have gotten that company? So if you're seeing traction, I'd say don't hesitate to raise money. There's lots of capital that's out there these days and just go for it. Just go for it. So be boring and just go for it. That's, yeah. that's, <laughs> that, you know, those, you that, 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 that is, that is honestly great, great advice. Um, and unique advice. I, I gotta say, I, I, I really appreciate that. Well, last and equally important question then is, can you share the name of a Canadian entrepreneurial star founder that you look up to and, and, and why? Sure. I think so Toby, I, Toby Lipke, I think sort of, and Harley, um, mm -hmm. both sort of race to the top here for me. I think mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing what they've built and that they've been able to scale their own skill sets from starting the company to whatever it is now, thousands of people. I think it's just an incredible journey. You know, the, the job of a CEO as your, as your, company is scaling really changes almost every six months. Like the job I'm doing now is incredibly different than the job I was doing six months ago, which is incredibly different than the job I was doing the previous six months. Mm -hmm. So to do that over and over and over again, to the point where it's, you know, whatever the, the size that they are today, Canada's largest company, I think is, um, is amazing. So I, I take one of those two. Um, and then I think the other one that I would add in, I'm going to give you three. So you asked Good. for one, Please I'm giving you three. Um, I'm a big fan of Mike Murchison at uh, Ada Support. Um, I mm. think Mike is, uh, is, I think Mike's brilliant. I love what he's building there. He's also part of a group in Toronto called Union Capital um, that has invested uh, in Rewind and a couple of other companies and just a huge fan of what Mike's building at Ada and, and how he's running that company. So those would be the three I think that I'm looking up to these days. Well, fantastic, fantastic. You know, you know the, the the thing about about Toby that I think is really interesting is I I remember being on a clubhouse chat and it was him and oh I think it was Daniel Eckberg, Dan uh, the the uh, Spotify CEO and Zuckerberg were the three people being interviewed and it just seems so like oh that's just a typical day for me you know as the founder as the yeah. founder of Shopify and it's like you know what you're doing Canada proud like you're sticking up there and you you do belong among those those uh you know giants of of our uh you know of, of our peers so uh either way thank thank you for sharing those and and, and Mike thank you for sharing uh you know the the, the the tales today and congratulations uh you know with rewind and the continued success uh you know as you go from round C and D and uh you know and uh um just just keep doing great stuff I don't want to say boring stuff because I don't agree I don't think it's boring but I do understand boring is what businesses want. <laughs> so there's good opportunity in that, but just keep doing the great stuff. And, uh, you know, and hopefully some of your, uh, your, the kids on the hockey team, either if they don't go to the NHL, you can influence them to go into the tech industry and create that next big business too. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. It was great being here. Fantastic. Fantastic. Ahoy, afternoon tea listeners. If you got this far, I assume you like this episode and that is awesome. Thank you. 
In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcast and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your feeds from. Afternoon Tea is a podcast with a goal to share the stories of Canada's successful tech entrepreneurs in order to prepare the next wave of founders. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts too. Please do let us know who you think should be on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at ttt.studio. That is P-O-D-C-A-S-T at T-T-T, that is three T's, dot studio. You will notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us at social media at T-T-T underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.